Thank you for tuning in to the sermon podcast from Redeeming Hope. We exist as a family of faith that follows Jesus and helps others find him by living all of life as missionaries of hope. If you want more information about our church or would like to support our ministry, go to our website at redeeminghope.org. Please enjoy the sermon podcast. Now we are continuing our series in him based on the book of Ephesians. Today we're in Ephesians 4, 17 through 32. And the title of today's message is The New Life. I'm reading out of the ESV, Ephesians 4, 17 through the end of chapter four. Paul writes to the church. Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity, but that is not the way you learned in Christ. Assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus, put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds." and to put on the new self created in the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Verse 25. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, that uh, the gospel teaches us how to think and how to live. And I pray you'd help us to walk out of this message today armed with your grace, love, and wisdom. I pray in Jesus' name, amen. So there's a passive part of fighting sin, you might say, and an active part. There's a passive part, an active part in our battle against sin. Jesus already fought and defeated the penalty of sin. So we simply believe that. We don't fight to defeat the penalty of sin. We are not under the condemnation of eternal judgment because Christ took the punishment for us. That's done. So in a sense, fighting sin is passive. We simply believe it and receive it as a gift. But we also are warring against the ongoing power of sin in our lives. That's the active part. And this is where we find ourselves in Ephesians today. After rehearsing the gospel of grace for four chapters, Paul gets into a discussion about what you might call practical Christianity. So first he he emphasizes and teaches his whole idea of being in Christ, being united with him, and now he's about to say, and here's what that looks like as it plays out in our lives. Paul never begins with practical Christianity in his letters. He always starts with the doctrines of grace and then transitions to conversations about good works, godly living as a fruit of what we believe. He did the same exact thing in the book of Romans. As the book of Romans, he he goes through uh, 
chapters one through three, uh, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Chapters four and five, justification by faith. Chapters uh, six through eight, sanctification by grace through faith. In other words, we're, we're sanctified by the same principle that saved us in the beginning, continues to save us as we trust in Jesus Christ and his power at work within us to transform us. Romans 9 through 11, election, Israel, the plan of salvation. And then Romans 12, he says, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. So Paul says, as we consider the mercies of God, what mercies of God? He says, therefore, I beseech you, as we consider the mercies of God. What is he talking about? He's talking about the mercies of God that he's been discussing for the first 11 chapters of Romans. And he's saying, as we consider what I've just talked to you about for 11 chapters, now let's do what is reasonable and live for God. Let's offer ourselves as living sacrifices unto him. In other words, every day we, we deny our, our, our sinful appetites and we submit ourselves to God and live for him. He says that's reasonable when we consider the way he's loved us in his mercy. Now, it's very important to remember that anytime Paul talks about doing good works, we see him teaching it in a way where good works are not the cause of our salvation, but the effect of our salvation. The true gospel says this, because you're justified, the effect of that is you're sanctified. Because you've been totally accepted through grace, the effect is good works and living a godly life. False gospels, legalism, flips the order of that. False gospels say, if you're sanctified, you'll be justified. The effect of your sanctification will be your justification. In other words, work hard, do good, put God in your debt, and the effect of it will be your salvation. That is not grace. That's not the gospel. One of those ideas is the gospel that I just shared, and one of those ideas is not the gospel. One is biblical Christianity, and one is legalism. True gospel, you're justified. The effect is sanctification. False gospel, be sanctified, do good, work hard, be moral, and the effect is your salvation. That's not the gospel. So now we get into this text and we see that Paul is teaching followers of Jesus how to live what we call the new life, to walk out the new life. And we see three things. Number one, the instruction. Number two, the nature. And number three, the source. What what are the practical instructions of the new life? Number two, what's the nature of it? And number three, what is the source of it? Let's talk about the instruction. And one of the things we see is that right away as we get into this text is that the new life that we're called to live requires effort. It requires effort. And that there's, there's two kinds of instruction that are given here, that are given here. Number one, to think right, and number two, to act right. One instruction uh, really deals with the mind, and one deals with our behavior. So the first, uh, the first kind of instruction says, think right. And we see in verse 22 and 23, he says in verse 22, put off your old self, your old way of thinking, your old lifestyle, your old mentality. And in verse 23, he says, put on the new self, the new way of thinking, the new relationship you have with God, the new lifestyle that you're called to. So this tells us that 
Walking in the new life isn't automatic. It actually requires effort. We need to be proactive. Taking off, uh, taking off sort of the dirty clothes of the old life and putting on the new clean clothes of the new life to walk in our new identity. Now, uh, this is gonna post on, on Sunday and I'm gonna share this message on Sunday. So assuming you're watching this on Sunday, if you're not pretend that you are watching this on Super Bowl Sunday, think about the Super Bowl game when the Chiefs and the Eagles take the field. <clears throat> How strange would it be if A.J. Brown, the wide receiver who used to play for the Tennessee Titans, put on his old uniform, plays for the Eagles now. How strange would it be if he went out in a Titans uniform at when the Eagles took the field? You would think <clears throat> he's having an identity problem. Now, recently we watched the, uh, as a family, we watched the Mark Wahlberg movie, Invincible, which is about a man named Vince Papali, uh, a local blue collar Philly guy, uh, who made the Philadelphia Eagles in open tryouts. And there's this scene when he walks into the locker room and sees his name on a uniform and he puts it on and it's a magical moment. He, he's a Philadelphia Eagle. Well, what's happening there? You know, if A.J. Brown wore the old uniform, that'd be an identity problem. And we see the Mark Wahlberg character, Vince Papali, putting on this new uniform and, and just the, the dignity and the, the excitement and the esteem uh, and, and the just the value of that moment in his life when he, when he realizes, I'm a Philadelphia Eagle. The Bible says, put off, put off the old self. That's not you anymore, bro. Don't put on that old uniform. Put on the new uniform. Put on the new self. Man, you're on the Eagles now. You're not on the Titans anymore. You're in the Super Bowl. So put on the new unit, put on the uniform that identifies who you actually are. And that's what Paul is saying. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Put on the new life. You're God's child. You're forever free. You're a son or daughter of royalty now. You're a saint. You're loved. You're chosen. You're in God's family. And so he's equipping our minds here. He's instructing our minds to think the right way, to put off the old and put on the new. And the second kind of instruction is uh, to act right. The first one is to think right. This is to act right. So he instructs first our mind, now he instructs our behavior. And listen to all these instructions he gives throughout this text. Verse 25, put away falsehood. Verse 25, speak the truth with your neighbor. Verse 26, don't sin when you're angry. Verse 28, stop stealing. Verse 28, do honest work and share with the needy. Verse 29, let no corrupt talk come out of your mouths. Also, verse 29, build one another up with your speech. Verse 31, put away bitterness, wrath, anger, slander, malice. Verse 32, be kind to one another and forgive one another. A lot of instruction here, a lot of practical Christianity commandments. And there's no way around noticing that this letter is loaded with commandments. Is this legalism? Sometimes, you know, we who love the grace of God kind of get nervous when we start talking about commandments and instructions. It's not legalism. There's, there's a way to, there's a place in our faith for commands, rules, morals, good works, sanctification. So this is not legalism. It's putting on the new life that shows whose we are. Paul calls it adornment in Titus 2, and it's an interesting way to look at this idea. Here's Titus 2, verses 9 and 10. Bond servants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They're to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, 
but showing all good faith, here it is, so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. He's saying that these good works decorate the gospel. You don't put rags on a Christmas tree, right? You put beauty on beauty. That makes sense. You don't frame a beautiful picture with fish skins from the dock. You know, that, uh, that my son Jack, uh, fish skins from the, the Cumberland that my son Jack left on the back deck. Oh, let's let those dry and turn those into a picture frame. You don't do that. Why? You adorn beauty with beauty. And Paul says good works adorn the gospel. They adorn the work of Christ in our lives by showing his beauty with beauty. There's this uh, famous story of Alexander the Great dealing with one of his military leaders who um, acted in a cowardly way. And he brought the man before him and he said, who are you? What is your name? Said Alexander the Great. The man said, my name is Alexander. Well, Alexander said, no, it is not. He said, yes, it is. He says, your name is not Alexander. He said, yes, it is. Alexander the Great said, you either change your name or change your conduct. And here in the gospel, Jesus is saying, you bear my name. And he doesn't shame us like Alexander the Great does, but he's saying, you bear my name. Live a life that reflects my name. We're we're Christians. We're we're little Christs, right? That's what the word Christian means. So Paul is teaching us that good works adorn the gospel. It shows whose we are. Paul, in giving instructions, shows us the effect of, of biblical faith. He's showing us what biblical faith in Christ looks like. What he's saying is this, when God is in your life, God produces God in your life. An apple tree bears apples and biblical faith in God, because his Holy Spirit indwells us when we put faith in him, that Holy Spirit produces godliness. It produces love in action, it produces good works. You might call it gospel in application. You've talked about this before. The gospel has two parts, our belief and our practice. And both of them affirm the truth of what we believe. Uh, the, the, the words, uh, some of my favorite words, orthodoxy, which is correct historic belief, and orthopraxy, which is correct practice. Now, having one without the other actually denies the gospel. Both are forms of heresy, which is false truth, false gospel. We can have correct belief, but if we don't have correct practice, we, we deny what we believe. Martin Luther said this, God doesn't need your good works, but your neighbor does. Dallas Willard said, The gospel is not opposed to working, it's opposed to earning. There are good works, commands, instructions all over the New Testament, not just the Old Testament, but the New Testament, but they're given not to earn anything from God, but to adorn what we believe and to to bring glory to God. Ephesians 2, 8 and 10 really puts both of these ideas of good works, uh, of of grace and good works together. For by grace you've been saved through faith. This is not of your own doing. It's a gift of God, not a result of works, 
so that no one may boast. Pretty clear, not saved by works. It's not a result of works. But then verse 10, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Right there in two verses, not of works, created for good works. Again, Paul is showing us the cause and effect of our faith. And he's showing the true, the, the true character of biblical faith. How do you know an apple tree is an apple tree? It produces apples because that is its nature. Is it an apple tree if you just tape fruit on it or staple fruit on it? No, doesn't make it an apple tree. An apple tree produces apples because that is, that is its fundamental uh, nature. And maybe you're sitting here going, man, we're talking about good works, huh? I've, I've sinned a lot. I've, I've given in a temptation. I've, I've blown it. I've, I've made mistakes. Recently, this week, I've made mistakes. What if I don't have enough good works? Okay, again, we are not talking about our justification before God. Let's remember that Jesus had enough good works to solve that problem for you. Secondly, what is the most important good work if we're talking about works? Jesus said in John 6, that the most important work was to believe in him, faith in him. So if you have faith in Christ, you have the one work that you need. Jesus saves us. Jesus rescues us. His work is our hope, not our own. So now, because of that, I'm free and you're free to do good works without fear. Like Dallas Willard said, the gospel is not opposed to working, it's opposed to earning. Since my works no longer have to do with earning my salvation, I can now do good works out of love and gratitude and worship to adorn what I believe in a point to God, to give glory to God. And that's the next point Paul makes about good works and sanctification, about the new life, is the nature. What is the nature of the new life? And what we see is that the new life is marked by love for God and others. He says here, do not grieve the Holy Spirit. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit. That word grieve is the Greek word lupeo, and it means to cause deep emotional pain. Do not cause deep emotional pain with the Holy Spirit. It's, it's severe sorrow. It's very intense, and it's actually used uh, of the, to refer to the pain of childbirth. So this idea of grieving the Holy Spirit doesn't mean don't make him mad. It means don't make him sad. It means that when we give ourselves over to sin or idols, it makes the Holy Spirit sad. It gives intense sadness to the Holy Spirit. Because what it says is, you're not enough. The love of Christ is not enough for me. I need, I need what the world has. And that, that makes the Holy Spirit sad. When we see God as a father and not a judge, and the Christian faith as a relationship, not a religion, these types of instructions and commandments make more sense. You're in a relationship with God, and it causes emotional pain when you choose another love, because that's what disobedience is. It's choosing another love. It's saying, he is not enough. Like, I began this whole, this whole uh, recording Jesus is enough. And when we choose sin, it's misguided joy, right? We're saying not enough. Jesus is not enough. It's choosing another love. You think something else will satisfy you 
outside of God. For example, I know the Bible says to forgive, but it feels so good to be angry and bitter. You're saying God isn't enough. I know the Bible says be content with my possessions, but I know I'd truly be happy if I had this. We're saying God isn't enough, and that grieves the Holy Spirit. Think of the prodigal son's father and the pain he must have felt to see his youngest son walking down the road towards sin. The father never stopped loving him. The son in the story was never not a son. But on the contrary, his son's sin actually magnified his love in the form of pain. If there's no love, there's no pain. David grieved the Holy Spirit. He stole his friend Uriah's wife, Bathsheba, and had him killed by placing him in the front of the battle. Once David came to his senses and realized what he did, look at what he concluded in Psalm 51. Verse four, he said, against you, you only, O God, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. I like how the New Living Translation says it. Against you and you alone have I sinned and I've done what's evil in your sight. You will be proved right in what you say and your judgment against me is just. See what David's saying about his sin? I hurt you. Against you, God, you only. Nobody even knew about this. It wasn't hurting anybody because nobody knew about it, but it was hurting you. It grieved you. It caused deep emotional pain with, between me and my father, my heavenly father. I want to ask you a question. What if your sin only hurts God? Is that compelling enough to restrain yourself and refrain from giving into it? Someone says, oh, my girlfriend and I live together. We have sex because we're already planning on getting married. And who's it really hurting? David says, against you, you only, oh God, have I sinned. Someone else says, I'm in a homosexual relationship. I know the Bible says that I have to lay down this lifestyle and submit my sexuality to Christ, but who's it really hurting? David says, against you, you only, God, have I sinned. There's a higher love that is calling me. Someone else might say, I cheat on my taxes, but nobody will know about it. David says, against you, you only, God, have I sinned. In the story of Joseph, when Potiphar's wife tries to get him to bed, he says, how could I sin against the Lord? Notice, he didn't suppress his sinful desires. That's how I, I think a lot of uh, not yet Christians think that Christians approach, uh, you know, not giving it a temptation is we suppress, our, we suppress our sexual desire. We suppress our sinful desires. David didn't do that. He didn't suppress his sinful desires. He enhanced his God desire. How could I sin against the Lord, he said. Joseph turned up the heat on his love for God. He made his love for God like a, like a burning, uh, you know, burning hot fire in his heart. I have a friend, uh, Andrew uh, Eastman, who tells a story about how he was traveling and he got too much change back. He got some extra money and he went back in, he gave it back to the cashier and she said, boy, I don't know anybody who'd be that honest. And Andrew said, well, I love God, but I fear him too. I like that. I love God, but I fear him too. In other words, I, I, I respect his authority in my life. I honor him. I know that I, will, that, I, that I will answer to him for my life and I seek to give him glory even in the secret places of my heart. See, he's, he's understanding what David said. Against you, 
You only, O Lord, have I sinned. Sanctification is loving toward God, seeking to do good, seeking to live godly lives, even in the secret place of our lives, is loving toward God, though we'll never do it perfectly. And sanctification and good works are also loving toward others. And that's why it says in verse 26, be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. In verse 27, give no opportunity to the devil. This tells us that both rage and passivity are unloving. Rage says, I want revenge and retribution. I want justice. I want a pound of flesh. Passivity says, I don't value our relationship enough to resolve this. So it says, be angry without sinning and don't give the devil an opportunity. Don't let the sun go down on your anger. Why would he connect this idea of being angry without sinning and not giving the devil an opportunity? How are those connected? Well, Jesus said that the devil was a murderer from the beginning. Unrighteous anger, no matter which direction it goes, whether it's uh, passivity or rage, ends up in some form of murder. Rage results in external violence. It, it can result in external violence toward a person. And there's plenty of stories in the news today about unchecked, unrighteous rage that results in violence and in its worst form, physical murder. But passivity, letting your anger simmer and boil, has a similar effect. It says, I'm going to treat you like you're dead. You don't matter to me. You're dead to me. The indifference is akin to murder because you're going to treat them as if they don't exist. And so Paul says, don't give the devil an opportunity, the murder of a friendship, the murder of a marriage, the murder of a business partnership, the murder of a church. Now, those are extreme places to go, but I'm showing you how this anger can give an opportunity to the devil and make us just like the devil towards someone else. And so the nature of Good works, the nature of sanctification is love for God and love for others. So, so Paul says, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. Paul, again, is teaching us how to love others, that these commands are about loving other people and building them up. So we've seen the instruction of the new life, the nature of the new life. And finally, what's the source of it? How do we live the new life? Well, of course, the source is Christ. And the last verse of our text today shows us that. He says, be kind to one another. That's a summary of everything he said. Tender-hearted, kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Paul never gives a command without reminding us of the source of the obedience. And that is the sacrifice and the love of Christ. Without his death and resurrection, we're doomed to be what we are. We're lost in the penalty and the power of our sins. So Paul was always careful not to leave people thinking that the answer is self-salvation. We need Christ. We need the power of God. And that was given to us at the cross. Paul points to God's love for us as he gives the command to forgive others. Because forgiveness makes sense when we remember Christ. Doing good makes sense when we remember Christ and how he's done good to us, how he's forgiven us. That's why Paul called living godly lives reasonable in Romans 12. He says, in view of God's mercy, let us offer ourselves to God. This is reasonable. And he also teaches that because of Christ, it's possible. Remember Christ. Remember the one who was angry and sinned not. 
and let us consider how to love others and forgive others and treat others and do good to others as he did to us. That is the new life in Christ. Just some thoughts for application. Number one, remember Christ. If you're struggling with uh, forgiving, if you're struggling with doing good, remember Christ and how he forgave you and how he did good for you. Number two, take that mental effort to put off the old life and put on the new life. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Put on your new identity in Christ. Remind yourself of who you are in him. Number three, don't let the sun go down on your anger. Pursue peace. Pursue forgiveness. Pursue it to the degree that's possible. And it's not always possible. Pursue reconciliation. And finally, number four, cheerfully do good works that God has prepared for you. It's a joy. We get to adorn our faith. We get to give glory to God with our lives and, and do good and be a part of God's work in this world to see redemption come to the nations. So cheerfully take your place in the orchestra. Play that instrument and give glory to God with the song of your life. Are you thankful today? Are you thankful for how God and Christ forgave you? Are you thankful that God was angry but sinned not against you but showed you patience and grace and mercy and love before justice and wrath, that mercy triumphed over judgment? Are you grateful? Then let's love others the same way. Let's reach out to our world the same way. Let's ask God for grace and let's ask God for his Holy Spirit to give us the power to live the new life. Thanks for watching today. Thanks for listening today. And let me leave you with this one final thought again. Jesus is enough. God bless you. Thank you for listening. We gather every Sunday at the Clarksville area YMCA. For more information, please go to our website at redeeminghope.org.